Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. Uh, we usually choose a brand new film or a film that is uh, premiering on a streaming platform. Uh, this week is our season finale. It's our 10th episode of season one. So we wanted to sort of cap it off with a big movie. Chris, what do we have? Yeah. And I don't know if most people would call it a big movie, but it's a big movie to us. Uh, in my opinion, I think yours, Dan, too. One of the best of the decade. Uh, Nightcrawler, the Dan Gilroy, Jake Gyllenhaal collaboration uh, came out in 2014. It's newly available to Netflix uh this month and we absolutely recommend you check it out before you listen to the rest of this episode yeah let's let's start there with like uh i'm curious this was your idea to to end the season with this and i went along with it gladly because i also love the film what uh what drew you to making this choice uh i think that you know seeing it back when it came out it kind of hit me like a sledgehammer Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think it saw it whenever it hit some uh, streaming platform or whatever, HBO. And it was one of those films that I felt like there was this little ripple of buzz when it came out that fall of 2014, but it wasn't much. Little, and then very the, little. Yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, definitely uh, not de- and not outside the art house group of people either. Um, but the moment it became available to people like the general public and on streaming or HBO, whatever it was like people ate it up and it became this film that if you, uh, were on Reddit at all in the last five years or on any discord, any sort of place where film (laughs) snobs and nerds and dweebs hang out, they would be talking about Nightcrawler. Uh, the number of times someone has brought up on like our movies or our true film, the two subreddits on on Reddit, uh, it's brought up once a day at least. So it has become sort of a, absolutely a cult film. Uh, I guess that term applies to the to Nightcrawler now. Um, it is very popular amongst a very specific group of people, and I would say mostly male, mostly under the <laughs> age of let's say forty ish. Um, And there's something about it that speaks to that group of people in a way that a lot of even other big cult, you know, like cult films, like like a Blade Runner 2049, for instance, didn't speak to them. There's there's something special about this film uh, and palpable when you hear people talking about it. It's not just like, oh, this is a good movie. It's like, oh, this is like so good. I can't even describe how much it means to me or how it made me feel. It's one of those films. So I felt like we had to tackle it. Sure. Um, when is the first time did you, you saw this thing? Uh, I saw it, uh, I believe the day it came out uh, on that Friday afternoon. Uh, I teach high school and I used to teach at a school uh, that got out early most Fridays um, for religious re- reasons. I'm not religious. So, or I guess if I am, it's, I, I go to the movie theater. So I went <laughs> to your temple. That's yeah, my temple. I went for like a 1 p.m. showing the day it came out. I swear it was like two other people in there. Oh, I'm surprised. Uh, yeah, it was it. But um, I don't know really what I was getting into. It mostly went just because like I, I think I read uh, the buzz when it premiered at Toronto. It got pretty uh, stellar reviews there. Um, but yeah, when it actually was being released, it seemed like even with the art house circle, because it's one of those strange movies and we'll get into Dan Gilroy and um and more later but it's one of the perhaps in my opinion anyways one of like the last standing wide release movies that 
probably in any time period after 2014 would have just been a limited release or a platform release if that and the way that it was it was just like sitting there at the cineplex just like with its ominous poster and neon title it just like felt like i I need to see what this what this is all about um it was also the same year that uh you mentioned blade runner 2049 denis villeneuve uh, yeah. He directed that, and he also directed Jake in that it, that same year in a movie called Enemy. Yeah. yeah, and I had just seen that, and so like this is it was pretty unique because like I had followed Jake Gyllenhaal like most movie nerds uh, since Donnie Darko, right in two thousand one, and he had like kind of quickly become just one of those like reliable actors. Uh, you know, he uh, there was an interesting um, article I read a profile of him talking about how like Prince of Persia was like the point of uh, no return for him, where it was like, OK, the, he kind of realized and the industry kind of realized that he doesn't fit that kind of yeah. you know stereotypical masculine movie star role. And so then he reverted back to these kinds of smaller, uh, edgier movies. And uh, I think that he's, it's going to go down history as uh, Lou Bloom is uh, one of the the great characters and his as one of the greatest performances and i think that's more than anything else we can we'll talk about the movie at length but his performance shook me to my core on that like sunny lonely friday afternoon yeah i the moment that i saw this i knew that you know his performance as lou um was kind of it felt up there with like some of the greats in the 70s it just had that sort of spark and intensity and zero give to it. None. There was no slack at all in what he was doing. It was almost as if, I mean, the true goal of being an actor, he became somebody else uh, and totally in, inhabited um, this, maybe a sociopath. Maybe we'll, we'll discuss that and what that's all about <laughs> later. Um but yeah, there's it's probably easily one of the finest performances of the last decade. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's like, insanity that he didn't even get a nomination. It makes no sense. It actually makes no sense. With, but I think from a financial perspective and how it actually performed, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they didn't because push it was it. not a popular film amongst any group of people. Um, when did it come out? Like it all in about? April? Yeah. Okay. So let, yeah, let's let's rewind. Let's do the film trace. Let's begin. Yeah. Let's with the conception into this thing of of Nightcrawler. So yeah, even before release, before production, going back to our friend Dan Gilroy. He wrote and directed this. This is his directorial debut. He had been in the industry since the early 90s, along with two of his brothers. Uh, his uh, brother Tony was uh, a huge pro- was a huge producer for a long time, uh, along with his uh, business partner, Jennifer Fox. Uh, they came out with one of the best movies of the 2000s, in my opinion anyways, Michael Clayton. And, so good. Uh, then... Uh, also, uh, the other brother who I'm losing the name of right now is a uh, editor, uh, ASC in the industry. Uh, I lost it. Um, but he, John, th- John Gilroy. Thank right. you very much. Yeah. Uh, the three of them uh, teamed up for this. Uh, basically, Dan Gilroy had been writing scripts, uh, but co-writing and uh, you know full credit, nothing of huge note. Probably his big break as a screenwriter was really when. His brother asked him to script The Born Legacy in 2012, which was directly preceding Nightcrawler. He had made uh, some, you know, very subpar 90s movies, Free Jack, uh, <laughs> where he met his wife, Renee Rousseau, 
Chasers in 94, directed by Dennis Hopper. So, like, he's got his foot in the industry. And then he uh, teamed probably his best work before Nightcrawler was a movie. I don't know if you saw this. The Fall from 2006, directed by Tarsum Singh. No, I've never seen it. Uh, Tarsum Singh, you might recall, is the director of The Cell, starring Vincent D'Onofrio uh, and oh <laughs> Jennifer God. Lopez. Classic question mark. Yeah, big question mark. <laughs> but uh, The Fall is an I highly recommend it. It's a it's a really uh, moving, um, mostly Spanish language uh, film, but it had a, a American script, and it's it's really it's really beautiful. And so then you know, Born Legacy, whatever. It's part of that franchise. It's probably the the weakest link. But uh, it's work, so I, I, I'm not going to begrudge him or his brother Tony. Of but then so. ultimately, now you can take over here, uh, once he had a shot at doing his own movie that he'd both write and direct, why this kind of weird treatise on television broadcast news slash uh, I'd, yeah, a million I mean, other it, things? Yeah, it's... um. You know, I think it, obviously if you're listening to this podcast, you probably should have seen the movie. But if you hadn't for whatever reason and, and kind of wonder, you know, what is Nightcrawler all about? It's about a lonely anti-hero villain question mark. We don't really know uh, a lonely guy who essentially, um, you know, wants to find a way to be, quote unquote, successful. He comes across uh, they're called stringers. They're essentially people that go around and film crash sites where police are getting involved, shootouts, arrests, and then sell that footage to local news rooms. Uh, and it takes place in Los Angeles. It's almost, Los Angeles is almost like, almost like a character in this film. It's one of those definitely sort of L.A., maybe noir films, you might want to call it. Uh, but the inspiration for this uh, from, from Dan basically came from uh, Arthur Felling, uh, known as Ouija. I think that's how you pronounce it, Ouija. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was a guy who... Uh, in the mid uh, 20th century would go around and listen to police scanners uh, and get to crime scenes like right away, uh, sometimes even before police got there and essentially uh, would take photos of people who were murdered. And then he would sell these sensationalized f- uh, photographs to the news. Uh, and that's sort of the impetus for this entire story. Uh, now, Gilroy updates it to the modern sort of version of that, which is are these stringers who sort of creep around Los Angeles at night looking for horrific things that happen uh, in order to make money off of them. Uh, And I think that was sort of the initial spark here. Uh, And then he kind of runs with it uh, in a way that is uh, almost less focused on the people who are the stringers themselves, I feel like. Uh, Obviously, Lou is the protagonist, but he also dives deep into the system that promotes them and that allows them to exist which is sort of the local news networks in Los Angeles specifically. Um, And I think that it's, uh, and then it kind of goes out from there, right? It's not exactly, would you call this a character study or would you call what, what sort of genre would you lump this into? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things about it that kind of edges it away from character study territory is uh notoriously the lack of backstory we're given about Lou right mm-hmm. uh it's a character study in as much as perhaps taxi driver is a character study right uh on the one hand like it's completely focused on Robert De Niro's Travis Bickle and Scorsese is really trying to you know show us the underbelly of New York City at the same time and yet we really don't ever truly understand Bickle and I'd say the same thing with Bloom 
at the end of this movie. Uh, it seems to be more focused on the setting and in particular the mechanisms that allow someone like Lou to succeed. Spoiler alert. Yes, exactly. And I think it's it's important to to note that he did start with uh, Lou as as a character, as a sort of he says anti-hero. And there's a mm-hmm. quote that he has. He sort of wanted to create a story where the anti-hero essentially wins. Uh, and the quote is, OK, if I go with an anti-hero, I don't want to do a reductive story of a psychopath. I want to do an anti-hero success story. Um, and then he goes on to say, wait a minute, maybe the problem isn't Lou. Maybe the problem is the world that creates a Lou and rewards him. And that's essentially the thesis of the film that he's described in this interview. Uh, And I think I don't think the problematic part of that is and maybe you can kind of because you you literally teach film in English to to young people. How would you would you describe Lou as an antihero? We're starting off with a heavy hitter here. Yeah. Is he really is he really an antihero? Because I dove into this as someone used to study this stuff and I I'm kind of at a loss Mm -hmm. um, to as to whether he really fits that definition. It's obviously ambiguous, but what do you think? Yeah, I think there's some key clues in the script that it's interesting that Gilroy is so easy to pronounce that um, because uh, a couple clues in particular where he straight up says like what it to Rick who if yeah. if there is a moral center in the movie at all, it's it's him played brilliant also brilliantly by Riz Ahmed, somebody I wish would be in more movies and uh, would kind of cool it on the rap career. But anyways, uh-huh. he uh, he says to his his new employee, Rick, when Rick says that he doesn't understand people, that he acts super weird, he's crazy. And he says to him and he he responds to him by saying, what if it's not that I don't understand people? What if it's that I don't like them? Which is just like as blunt of a testament to lose misanthropy as you can get. In which case, like if you compare it to some of like the most famous antiheroes like Travis Bickle or Tony Soprano, say, I don't think either of those characters would say that. Right. Correct. Yeah. So in that case, I feel like it's more of a straight up. We are. We, he's presented as an anti-hero, I, I would say for sure, in the first couple acts of the movie, but especially in like the reveal and the um, what should be Lou's downfall, but is actually his rise in the film's final act. It proves that he is a sociopath, that he is um, uh, a villain. Yeah, I, I would totally honestly agree with that as well. I just don't think... I think the common perception of an anti-hero is that, okay, they have a lot of terrible aspects to who they are, but there is some shred of humanity inside of them that doesn't make them turn into a villain, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's something a part of them that still they hold on. Um, and I just don't think that, you know, I don't think there's anything there with Lou. I think he's a textbook sociopath and psychopath. And I actually think that's what makes the film so powerful. Right. Um, that's what makes it hit so hard. But then I, I you know, I was I, I did a lot of this research and then watched the film and then I went back tonight and reread some of it. And like going into the the rewatch, I was like, oh, like this, these interviews make sense. These statements all align with what's on screen. But then looking back at this, you know, Hall says in an interview about the film, uh, people call him a sociopath, but I wouldn't at all. I would call it the birth of an artist. It's poetry <laughs> to him. Like, I don't. Do, do, uh, I would you that, say that like Gilroy would yeah. agree with that? I mean, like, 
No, and I, I mean, you look at you, you can look at the press tour. There is a pretty infamous clip that we were just talking about before we pressed record, uh, where it, it seems like Gilroy and Gyllenhaal, even though they seem to have some kind of really strong chemistry, uh, in far as creating movies, uh, it does not seem like they co- see eye to eye at all a lot about uh, um, the analysis of them. It's also very possible that Gyllenhaal is just messing with the New York Times when he says that kind of thing. Um, and yeah. also kind of that part of he clearly went deep into the the psyche of this person. And um, I'd imagine you know, playing that I could see that as something that like Lou wouldn't say, but that like a, a more pretentious, like arts minded rather than business minded person might say about somebody like Lou. Um, I don't know. It feels like something that like the the the. Kevin Spacey's character in Seven would say or something not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's totally true. Um and like in terms of like the conception of Lou and who he is, there's a lot of stuff. There's so much like interviews that they've done, Gilroy and Gyllenhaal that it's like it was very overwhelming on mm-hmm. some level. It's I think it's pretty rare where you get an artist uh, or a director who speaks so freely and openly about why they did what they yeah. did yeah, and what it means. I mean, there's so many comments. Lou is a corporation. Uh, Jake and I always believe that if you came back in 10 years, Lou would be running the corporation. There's no stopping Lou. Um, and stuff like statements like that over and over again. And I kind of do wonder, does that, you know, seeing the film without that sort of context to it uh, and then going back and, and reading this stuff, a, a lot of the sort of nuances of the film are a little bit more accented because of this sort of commentary. But do you think that that ruins viewing it? Or do you feel like these words add to the experience or take away? Um, I, I, I don't know. I think that there's definitely uh argument on both sides of it. I think ultimately uh, a lot of it feels, I mean, I have to be honest, the, that Gilroy quote, for instance, where he pronounces him an anti-hero and, he just talks about like wanting wanting a success story um, that doesn't sound that novel or deep to me. And yet when I watch the movie, you know, separated from that, there is such like an, a vicious intensity of it. And I don't think it's just Gilroy's script, though. It's definitely great. And it's not just Jake Gyllenhaal's performance, which is absolutely great. But like there's so many other aspects to this. And maybe this is a good segue into um, the production of the film that I think you know, without a couple key elements, maybe this movie wouldn't have operated on such a high level. I mean, the two that come to mind was our hiring uh, Robert Elswit as the director of photography, a uh, longtime collaborator with Paul Thomas Anderson, as well as uh, an unbelievable score by James Newton Howard, who also knocked it out of the park with uh, Michael Clayton. And so it feels like yeah, it detracts on one hand a lot of these press quotes, but on the yeah. other hand, it's I think it's hard. I mean, go back to the auteur theory. I I think that this is not as much of a Dan Gilroy movie as it is just like a phenomenal team effort on everybody's part. No, that's a really a, a really good point. And uh, in terms of the the cinematography here, this film is gorgeous. Um, yeah. Shot at night on digital during the day on film, it is brilliant. Um, it's just unbel- It's one of those. I think L. A. is probably. Uh, one of my favorite sort of cities to see on film, whether it be like even more recent, like collateral Chinatown, 
it's just this beautiful, sprawling mess of a place. I always preferred it to New York in terms of seeing it on film. There's it's, It has such a unique character to it. And the way they capture the L.A. nighttime and the freeways and just that endless sort of neon sprawl, it's, it's gorgeous. And I think it adds so much to this movie. Um, it makes, I think, the psychological and emotional stuff just deeper. Uh, it just adds another layer of authenticity to it. And also sort of um, almost like mysticism, if that makes sense, almost like myth making. Mm-hmm. There's like a, a boldness and um, bigness to everything that they're doing uh, with the cinematography that really adds to the characterization. Uh, I think that a couple of things that sort of popped out to me, like looking at the production notes, you know, one is that there were no interiors or exteriors, no night or day in the script. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so it, it seems to me, and then they, he talks about going out uh, with Robert um, to sort of look at locations. There's a great little quote here. We would go out in L.A. at three or four in the morning in a Dodge Charger, lose dream car uh, that you've seen in the film, actually, uh, just looking for shots and talking about the story. We bonded uh, cinematically. The idea for L.A. was for it to be physically beautiful. That's how I see it. I wanted to capture its wild, untamed energy. Uh, Robert and I were always trying to use wider angles and deep focus when we could. Um, and I think that like there's there's almost I think the script obviously was set in stone with the dialogue and the characterization. But there's a huge amount of improv happening here, mm-hmm. kind of going back to um, a little bit of the David Gordon Green sort of concept where that is putting a group of really funny people in a room and letting them run here it's just two film nerds driving around Los Angeles in the middle of the night yeah. looking for beautiful locations to sort of set to set their story in. And I think that that's a really important element to this. You know, I, I, another movie, uh, anything by Michael Mann, obviously, Heat. Right. Um, and then I guess even before this, Drive would be another good example of uh, an L.A. movie. You know, the nighttime, the car, the cruising, that cool, detached loner uh just sort of uh, making his way through um the sprawl of los angeles i mean i could watch this movie over and over again i do have to say that like the one thing that i think really helps make this movie stand out from a lot of those other la movies even ones about criminals like heat is that Mm -hmm. there is there there is that coolness to it but there it's also just like pulsating with nervousness and anxiety yeah uh that it it makes it feel uh it i don't know what the what the right what the what the right descriptor would be but it feels like when i'm watching that i can both i love the juxtaposition of the beautiful cinematography and the absolute just like ugliness of what the characters are doing on screen you know yeah and there's also like that rising tension right because you don't know what lou's gonna do no. You don't know what he's capable of. And I know in the opening scene, you know, he's stealing the the fencing and the copper and he's I'm assuming he killed that security guard. I don't even know. We don't know what happens. He has his watch. Right. Um, but there there's that unpredictability that Lou Lou could really do anything and he would do anything to get ahead. And I think as as we're in the seat with him, we're almost in the car with him like Rick. We're scared. Because I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to go along on this ride. 
it's like that moment where Rick is brought into that shootout setup, essentially, that Lou has done. He's like, I don't want to be a part of this. And mm-hmm. I think as the viewer, we have that same visceral reaction to what he's doing. The first time that that really, I think, um, popped in my sort of head and heart to some degree, it was the murder scene. Yeah. Where he, you know, walks through the murder scene way before the cops and the way that he's using the camera to almost violate these dead people is so unsettling. But one I think of which that... we find out later was actually still alive. Yes, oh absolutely. My God. And it was just it's so like so that, I think you you put that beautifully. It, it's it's this beautiful Los Angeles juxtaposed with this monster of a person. Mm-hmm. And a monster and disgusting sort of industry and society that sort of dehumanizes most people. Yeah. And I do um, I do have to say that like one of the key things that helps it work um is that uh you know, watching movies my whole childhood, a lot of which, you know, are filmed or take place in Los Angeles or both. And I got there as a teenager for the first time and I'm like, this place is actually pretty ugly. There's like in real life, it's the sprawl is kind of disgusting, but that's part of what works with like the theme of, you know, artifice and sensationalism uh, in the film. So it it works as both the juxtaposition and as irony, which is also just lovely. I think we both clearly love this film, but the question is, (laughs) (laughs) did other people like this movie or not is the big question. I think, you know, it premiered 2014 Toronto National Film Festival. The pretty good reviews, I remember, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, was released that fall. Obviously, Uh, the critical response was very high. All critics scored 95 percent in Rotten Tomatoes and 82 actual score. Uh, top critics was 88%, a little bit lower, 79 actual score. Metacritic was a 76, which is very good. Um, audiences, I think, had a similar sort of response. Uh, 85% Rotten Tomato score. This is before they verified it. So, But who's going to like vote bomb Nightcrawler? It wasn't that popular of a movie, so <laughs> right. it's probably pretty accurate. 81 actual score. Uh, the one that really sticks out to me, I think, is most... Um, uh, kind of the paradigm of what we're talking of, how, what type of film this is is the letterbox score of an 80 an 80 on letterbox is basically i call it god tier mm-hmm. that's like a godfather that's like heat that's the level that that group of people who uses letterbox kind of film nerds kind of people like us film bros to some degree right. um they they worship this film uh, imdb 79 out of 100 which is very good cinema score of a b minus which is not good. That's terrible for opening night. <laughs> yeah. So the people like you who went to go see it the opening day, uh, most uh, some of them liked it, but a lot of them absolutely hated the film. Uh, a typical film, wide release film is going to get a B plus essentially. If they go, someone goes up to see it and they're entertained. It's a B plus a B minus means there's, there's a lot of detractors there. Um, how does this thing do financially? Oh, not so great. Uh, but it was a low budget movie, right? Its production budget was at 8.5. I think they shot it over the course of 26 days. Most, you know, sub 10 million movies shoot for 22 days or fewer. And uh, but it had an opening of 10.4, uh, which is good. But, you know, account for PNA and all that. I mean, it's interesting uh, because uh, it opens uh, 2700 theaters which, you know, think about what kind of movie we're talking about, a movie about a sociopath that's like a specific like world in which, yeah, you've got a big name like Jake Gyllenhaal. You've even got Bill Paxton, an excellent supporting role. We haven't even mentioned that um, and Rene Russo. Uh, and yet 
you know, it's a very strange movie to see at the Cineplex alongside. I don't know what what else were like the biggest top earners in 2014. Some I kind know, of Marvel man. movie, probably. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just it's it's a strange movie to put there, right? Uh, and yet, um, it, you know, it, it it did a total worldwide of 17. So yes, probably still lost money, right? Probably lost them about three mil or something, but not yeah, as terrible. Yeah, definitely did not make money. <laughs> right, Pro- but not as terrible as it probably could have uh, done if it was a platform release. Who knows if it ever would have gotten bigger than the, the the art house circuit? You know. Yeah, exactly. What did uh like we said? It did not get um an Oscar nomination for acting, um or directing or music or editing or cinematography like it should have, but um it did get an original screenplay nomination, which was uh kind of surprising, right? Especially considering that, like you yeah. said, they they weren't really pushing this movie. Well, I I think what happened there is that because the Gilroy brothers are so connected, and mm-hmm. obviously Renee Russo is pretty connected. I think the fact that this was a of Los Angeles film made by insiders. It had that leg up uh, in terms of the voting and the Academy. I think yeah. everybody knew them. Uh, and so I think that's probably why I got that nomination. Right. But yeah, it was definitely one of those films where, you know, critics, critics really adored it. Um, and I think the general public, for the most part, when it first came out, pretty much ignored it. Um, what did some critics have to say? Yeah. So uh, my favorite review is from Matt Zoller sites. I think he's probably um, the best living film critic in my opinion from Roger Ebert.com. Um, he also started out as a TV critic at the New Jersey ledger with the infamous Alan Seppenwall. Um, he says it's warning against being fooled in life by people who remind us of can do all American hotshot heroes in fiction incarnations of apple pie capitalism who see what they want fame money a job a mate and go after it and refuse to take no for an answer even if the no is delivered through tears uh-huh. it's just such a such a horrific way but absolutely perfect way to say it as well um i think one of the key things you mentioned um in your tweet uh hyping up our our season finale is uh i think you called it a polemic on capitalism is that correct yeah i we mean i think that gotten into I that would- yeah, I mean, that's true. I think that, like, it's one of the things that I've sort of been going over in my head pretty constantly uh, about this film. And he even says, like, up near the, the conception of this film, I can find the quote while I'm talking. Um, you know, he calls it essentially a hyper-capitalist society. And Lou is like, you know, he says he's a product of our society, essentially. You know, is Lou really an evil person or is he just someone trying to survive, essentially? And here's one of the quotes. Gilroy says, capitalism is capitalism. Success is success. And people who strive and are not encumbered by the usual, more fragile societal things that we put importance on are usually going to do better than somebody else. Um, And he also talks, he even uses the term anti-capitalist somewhere. I would say in general, to me, um, ultimately, this is an anti-capitalist film at its core, and it is a polemic. Um, I don't really see it as a character study. Mm. And the reason that I say that, and I don't think Lou, despite the fact that he's acted incredibly well and very interesting as a character, he's not really the center of the film on some level. The center of the film is this society... Um, and sort of economic system and way of life that we've created that allows a loot to exist and excel uh, and kind of like he says like a virus spread across our country to me that's the genre of this film because if i try to think it any other way to me he's not really an anti-hero right and we've discussed that he's a villain so if he's a villain 
uh, what it, what type of film is this? Obviously not a comedy. It's not a tragedy because nothing bad happens to Lou. There's no tragic fall. Uh, he ends up winning and he ends mm-hmm. up sort of uh, excelling and growing because of his sociopathy. Um, so to me, the real target of this film, and I think the ultimate purpose is to sort of say, hey, this is what we've created. Lou is like the manifestation, the symptom, the Trump, if you will, of our system right in front (laughs) of our faces. And he's disgusting and he's a monster, but we created him. I mean, that's how I saw it. I mean, how do you see it? Well, it's interesting. That makes me the the way you put that. The first thing that came into my mind was uh, this feels like more perhaps in the vein of Silence of the Lambs. If if Anthony Hopkins, if uh, Hannibal Lecter truly was the protagonist, because you have no backstory, you have, uh, you know, uh, arguably a product of his society as like an elite intellectual uh, turned cannibal. And then you it's a success story. He ends up succeeding and escaping. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Spot Sounds of the Lambs, yeah. Uh, you have. Yeah, I think that's true. So in some cases, it's a thriller but i think it's a straight it's a horror movie right like i felt yes it's a horror movie i felt more scared in this movie than in like many horror movies of the past decade Um, and i remember watching it feeling that like this does it has that sort of the icy soundtrack and mm -hmm. it just it builds in tension it has the same pacing as a horror movie um and I, i don't know i think that like you know talking about this film and you know, I, if I had to score it, I would put, you know, probably like an 89 or a 90 or something like that. It's one of my favorite films, obviously, of the last decade. But if I will say that there's a, maybe a weak part to the entire um, thing, it's definitely the end of it um, mm-hmm. and how the resolution uh, never really comes for Lou. It's not. And that's why I wouldn't call it a traditional story or a character study, because ultimately Lou never changes. Right. He always he stays the same and gets better and better. What's his real conflict? Where's the antagonist? You know, it just doesn't have a lot of those natural sort of story elements. Um, And so by the end of it, in the the final scene, like he's getting interrogated by the police uh, and then the 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 beautiful final scene where he sort of has the the small group of stringers that he now uh, is the boss of and his own company. Um, that makes all sense, but I, I felt like there was something missing at the end. Did you feel that, or do you felt like it was really tied up with a perfect bow? You know what? I, that's an interesting thing to think about because I, I, I definitely didn't get that that kind of. Uh, it, it it sounds like to some degree you got this kind of sense of hollowness or emptiness at the end, which is one of the negative reviews from Dana Stevens at Slate, who's an excellent critic yeah. who I usually always agree with, but she was one of the few uh, negative reviews she wrote. Rather than finding a way to help us understand, if not sympathize with the repulsive Lou, Gilroy settles for building an elaborate fishbowl of a movie around this relentlessly antipathetic character, allowing the audience to peer on and peer in on him curiously from a reassuring distance. Nightcrawler, like its entrepreneurial to a fault protagonist, is ambitious but ultimately hollow, eager to dazzle and shock us, but reluctant to let us inside. Which adds to the, you know, not just your point about, you know, at the end, there is no resolution. There is no really like letting us in, but also to that sense of it being kind of somewhere stuck between a character study and, you know, societal commentary. So it it doesn't feel like it fully uh, uh, embraces that, which I I do agree with that. There is like a certain distance here. Right. Um, Is that on purpose? I don't know. I don't know if uh, it feels like to some degree that a lot of this movie, which sometimes the best movies do, 
uh, a lot of the analysis comes from uh, the reader rather than the author. It seems like Dan Gilroy was very much just like, you know, this is, you know, capitalism society is messed up and this guy is the kind of guy that takes advantage to it. And he just took it to the extreme. And yeah, it's it's entertaining. It's visceral. It's uh, horrific. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and beautiful. Um, yeah. And so to, to that degree, I get it. But I also felt like uh, there was another review that I read and I lost it here, but uh, where they mention, um, you know, that coda of the the two vans that he he's yep. now, you know, and once again, that's one of the, the movie's great editing tricks, like you mentioned earlier with the opening scene of uh, the security guard. And then all of a sudden we see that he's he has his Rolex um, and then they do the same thing here where he's in the interrogation room. Um, the cops know that he uh, definitely orchestrated this uh, horrific shooting, mass shooting, essentially. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet they don't have any, they somehow don't have any reason to hold him. And so he's like immediately like, boom, fast forward. He's on the road now with three new interns and a giant smile on his face. He he, he has become the head of the corporation. So like yeah. on, on the one hand, yes. But on the other hand, it just, I think that's such a icy sting to the concept that it works for me. Yeah, no, I could totally see that. It, it, it lands kind of with a, almost like a sucker punch. Like, mm-hmm. oh, he's supposed to lose and he doesn't lose. Right. Uh, at all. And I think, you know, that kind of leads me to sort of, I think maybe the final sort of question here is, why has this film connected so well? For us, it's, I think, you know, there's a lot of different reasons, but why is it connected with this group of people, especially in America, of young men? What is it about Nightcrawler and Lou that they're attracted to do you think i mean the the uh, you mentioned that this is a incredibly popular movie on reddit and discord two places that i purposely try to avoid going on the internet um but uh i mean it makes sense it the i feel like the 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 quote that you have here about the cultural impact um from an overland article uh it says Lou Bloom digests mass culture and then regurgitates it back all over us, spurting out insipid middle management platitudes and innate tabloid morality at every turn. He adds to the discomfort by being the consummate narcissist. One of the, my favorite details about the movie, and I had to look it up to figure it out, is um, when Lou's uh, alone doing some ironing in his sad apartment with a single plant, uh, watching an old uh, mo- 50s movie. Um yeah. It is a, a Danny Kaye movie called The Court Jester. And the basic plot of that movie is that it's about a court jester who manages to manipulate the feudal system to eventually become a knight, uh, <laughs> which is just beautiful. like a beautiful little Easter egg. Um, and ultimately, I feel like that's it's I mean, this would not work if Lou Bloom was not a white male uh, in America, I don't think. That's a that's an awesome point. I'd never thought of that before. Like he's kind of the he has the keys to sort of manipulate other people, whereas other people wouldn't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, it also I think there's a little bit of a Wolf of Wall Street yeah. and taxi driver thing going on where people are not necessarily getting the criticism. I think that Gilroy is shoving down our throats constantly. <laughs> but if you're, I think, a younger <laughs> man and you see this. I think there's a possibility I can see myself as a 17 or 18 year old watching this and being like, well, you know, Lou was alone 
like a lot of young men are. And he doesn't want to be alone. He wants to be successful. So he goes out and he's a sort of, he's in a way, the paradigm of the self-made American male. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. he creates his own business. He's entrepreneur. I mean, <laughs> he has these, it's the platitudes, the middle management stuff. And it's almost like a self-help thing. And I think that speaks to a lot of lonely, alienated men who maybe don't have a role model or a father figure and stuff like that. That like Lou to them is like Tyler Durden was in Fight Club. Mm-hmm. He's like their their id running wild. Yeah. Um, and uh, it that to me is the scariest part about this movie is that I've met people sort of like Lou before in my life. Uh, or at least they hid those parts, but you could tell that they were not on the up and up in a lot of ways. Uh, and those people are very successful. Uh, and especially as someone who's worked in startups and business, there's a lot of people out there like him um, that, you know, they're successful because they don't have that moral code and they don't really care about other people. And I think at the end of the day, that's what Gilroy is sort of he's holding up that mirror to us and saying, look at what we've created. <laughs> um, and it's it's unnerving, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, any closing thoughts for season one of Film Trace? Man, it's just it's been a it's been a ride. And uh, I really appreciate that uh, everybody who's been supporting us on Twitter and listening and subscribing on Anchor and the iTunes Music Store. I look forward very much to season two. We'll get that going in a few weeks. Uh, right, Dan? What are we going to do for our season two premiere sometime in mid to late September? We're going to keep we're gonna keep it a secret where we're going to have oh, a special okay. guest. We're going to we're going to yeah. we're going to do a Netflix film when it's premiering then. But we'll keep it a secret under wraps. Uh, and we're going to have a special guest uh, on the season premiere. Uh, but yes, we do appreciate you all listening. Uh, it's been uh, a great ride and we hope you keep listening to uh, season two. Thank you. This has been Film Trace.